Section 17 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Sangwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The Original Sinner, Part 1. Time hung heavily on my hands now that the Bachelor's Club had almost melted away. I could not steel myself to sit for any length of time within those walls which had so often echoed with single hearted laughter. Every night brought back old memories. I could hardly look the steward in the face, nor rid myself of the feeling that Wallaby Jones spent his day in gloating. Determined as the remaining three of us were to run the club, and remain single till death did us part, we yet rather shrank from meeting one another there. We had given up the hope of filling up the vacancies left by the miscreants whose names adorn the funeral fresco. The vacancies in men's crania needed filling up first, the only person who benefited by our losses was jolly little Mandeville Brown, for they so upset his mind that he published a volume of verse at his own expense. It was called Poems of Pessimism. I was never more surprised in my life than to find the sale spreading like wildfire. I suppose the title was so happy. Not being able to write poetry, I took to watching McGillicuddy from an unreasonable and insulting but irrepressible fear that he might go and get married next. One fine October evening, as we were walking together down Pimlico Way in Indian File, he suddenly turned upon me and suggested in broad Doric that I should start a paper. I jumped at the sudden suggestion. He said that such talents as heaven had blessed me with ought not to be wasted. In a moment I saw the idea. The new journalism had invented interviewing, but interviews were always so short on paper. A new journal which interviewed the man of the week in each number, and in all the number, would hit the public between wind and water. No sooner conceived than begun, I registered the title of At Home Every Monday, and called upon Mandeville Brown, thanking the stars that had made an old friend famous just in time to be useful. I was determined to look after number one well. The pessimist was practicing a step-dance when I arrived, but he graciously desisted and flung himself upon an ottoman. A faint smell of a tower of roses pervaded his artistic apartments, decorated with plaques, color symphonies, busts of Schopenhauer and Leopardi, French comic papers, pendant guitars and violas, flowers, photographs from the nude, old porcelain proof etchings, and favorable reviews of poems of pessimism. "'Then you wish to interview me about my poems of pessimism?' he said, lighting an aromatic Turkish cigarette, and leaving me to help myself. "'I do. I want to know what they mean.' "'Have you not read them?' "'Yes, that's why I want to know. I do not speak for myself alone. They have made such a sensation.' and sold so tremendously that the public wants to know what they mean. My dear Paul, I cannot tell you. I have written the poems. It is for the commentators to provide a meaning for them. Well, at any rate, the public wants to know what you mean. Ha! <laughs> that is different. Here is your interview with me. Kindly let me see a proof. He took out of his drawer a very bulky manuscript, neatly typographed, and handed it to me. I looked at him inquiringly. "'Don't you understand?' he said. "'I have no time to be interviewed now that I am famous. While I was unknown I could have afforded numerous facilities to interviewers. They did not seize the opportunities. 
Foreseeing that my time would be valuable the moment fame came to me, I devoted some of my numerous hours of obscure leisure to interviewing myself. I never put off till tomorrow what I can do today, and I congratulate myself on the saving of time thus affected. The interview is divided into three parts. The first part is taken up with your impressions, the third with mine. In the second you will find full particulars of my ancestors, birth, training, early genius, rise and progress, trousers and times of writing, manners and income tax, and my list of the best hundred books, pictures, and musical compositions. This part is extremely interesting. I cannot imagine anything more so, though you are at liberty to do so if you please. You have carte blanche to do with me as you will. Make a new man of me, if you can. There is really no more reason for my taking up your time. You will find my remarks a good deal more artistically unpolished than if I had to formulate my ideas about everything, etc., impromptu. Goodbye, Paul. Wish you luck, and don't forget to send me a proof. As soon as I was outside, I turned into a restaurant and feverishly opened the manuscript. I was extremely curious to know how he had impressed me, the manuscript was headed in capital letters. The Prince of Pessimists, Mandeville Brown Interviewed. I was glad to see that my impressions were completely credible. My observations betokened a ready eye and a pungent pen. But I feel some modesty in obtruding my own impressions upon the reader. I shall omit this portion of the interview and reproduce only part three. You have always been known as a pessimist? Yes, that is the worst of it. I can never enjoy myself without being called upon to explain that it is not that I am inconsistent, but that the inquirer is a fool. What is the formula of pessimism? That this is the best of all possible worlds. But that is the formula of optimism. I cannot help it. I do not believe that any better world than this is possible. That is the awful pity and pathos of it. Nothing is possible but what is. And what, then, is the formula of optimism? The badge of optimism is the mourning brand, and its supreme expression, pity for the dead. Your poems have a good deal to say about fate. Fate willed it so. You don't believe in free will, then? No. We can do as we like, of course, but we can't like as we like. Free will is refuted by figures. Kismet has been translated into mathematical curves. Life is an hereditary disease. It is transmitted from father to son. The persistent immigration of pauper infants must be checked, or one day there will be an epidemic of parenticide. At present, every well-regulated homicidal mind shrinks from it. In China, when a man signalizes himself, they ennoble his ancestors. On the same principle, when a man commits a crime, we ought to punish his parents. That would put the brake on parentage. Everyone can help being a parent. No one can help being a child. Then the criminal is... The criminal's parent. If we studied the criminal instead of his comfort, we should know this. The criminal is the legacy duty we have to pay on the civilization bequeathed to us. Crime is as hereditary as gout, insanity, or a seat in the House of Lords. Then you don't think life is serious after all, as a popular dramatist hath it. You think that it is a mistake. I combine both views. Life is a serious mistake. 
Is that why you are a socialist? Yes. Why should we not divide the evil? But I am nonetheless an individualist. I am as self-contradictory as existence itself. It is intolerable that the fittest should survive. It is equally intolerable that we should have to be looked after by our neighbors. Then how would you describe yourself politically? Like all reasonable men, I am a Democrat with a profound distrust of the people. Politics is a seesaw. Conservatism creates radicals by irritating the ill-to-do. Radicalism creates conservatives by contenting them. Then progress is a fiction? Fortunately, yes. We never progress. We mark time, and because we have left the past behind us, think that we are in advance of it. The brotherhood of man is a confidence trick. If war is to be killed, it will be only by the gospel of smokeless powder at hoc genus omni. When the scarlet fever can no longer be cured by bloodletting because we can't get at the enemy, the race will pride itself on its civilization. No, progress is fortunately impossible. But why fortunately? Why should you rejoice if the coming of justice on earth is impossible? Because it would be so unjust. Why should some future generation be beastly comfortable merely through coming late? It is a most disgusting ideal. It is the ideal of all social reformers, of all religions. If they realized what their ideal meant, they would abandon it. Ideals are the result of weak visualization. It is only by not defining your ideal that you get the strength to pursue it. But idealists are the salt of the earth, the saving remnant. Idealists are too heavenly for earth and too earthly for heaven. They are like Mohammed's coffin, out of touch with either sphere. The one thing these unselfish dreamers will never understand is that their unselfishness is a physical impossibility, that all human action must be in the middle voice of the Greeks, with reference to self. No more surely do we see the world through eyeglasses than we do everything to please ourselves. Oh, if the idealists would only realize this, they would be at once better philanthropists and worse men. It is the idealists who are responsible for the current panacea of culture. The race will educate itself away. Self-culture is an unhealthy hothouse experiment, but it is not so mischievous as universal gardening. Oh, what terrible riddles the modern sphinx sets us! None of the childish conundrums which Oedipus plumed himself on answering. But surely you would not return to the days when the vulgar could not read or write, and there was no free press to represent and mould their aspirations. Free press? Oh, shade of Milton, gagged by Mrs. Grundy and supported by advertisers. Your pill-vendor or soap-boiler regards himself as the patron saint of journalism. Oh, the advertiser! He is a true king of our century. At every turn he sternly commands us to wash with his soap, smoke his tobacco, or intoxicate ourselves with his brandy. He would willingly purchase the sunset to paint on the clouds the name of his nostrum. He would have liked to contract for the writing on the wall that mystified Belshazzar. Letters of fire on the firmament would no longer terrify us. We should divine a connection with hair dye or tooth powder. Ah, the free press is in a parlous state when it has to be kept alive by patent medicines. For the rest, 
the less freely we examine the works of the free press the better your average journalist has his bread buttered literally on both sides and it is a mere fluke which opinions he is paid to denounce as for the people he caters for its chief reading is scraps and it prefers life insurance to literature when it reads that if two million three hundred and sixty eight thousand seven hundred fifty nine postcards were piled on top of another you could only read the last one or that eight hundred thirty thousand two hundred fifty one h's were dropped in seven dials last monday it is happy literature rules the roast and letters are smothered between prize packets the genius who divined what the age wanted deserved the fortune he made the age of folios is past the dear old folios without which charles lamb found heaven incomplete are left to the bookworms philological or entomological parasitic literature books about books reviews of reviews is the only thing that pays intellectual laziness and the hurry of the age have produced a craving for literary nips the torpid brain requires but a lively fillip it has grown too weak for the sustained thought brevity must be the soul of everything the wit can take care of itself even novels and plays must be short and not to the point the bookworm has developed into the butterfly the other great journalistic achievements of the age are the evening eavesdropper the society scandal-monger and the financial filibuster how one-sided you are the number of persons interested in literature has been immensely raised in the last half-century true there never was an age in which so many people were able to write badly and to think there is a man who wants to turn out writers like chartered accountants and to grant poetical licenses at training school for authors oh this modern eruption of black spots on white paper the age needs to be taught to read not to write and it needs most of all to be taught not to write especially not to write recollections everybody sets about writing his recollections though nobody will recollect his writings the sense of art too is dying novel writing has become a branch of pamphleteering the characters make talk in lieu of love or scenes we have lady writers more theological than logical and romances which provoke rejoinders imagine a rejoinder to vanity fair the overture to Lohengrin, or Millet's Angelus. No, we are not an artistic people. The free glory of art is not for us. Not one man in a thousand understands technique and music or painting or has a soul responsive to beauty, though all are willing to criticize freely in that exchange of ideas between equals alone is no robbery. We English are always striving to reduce art to a science, it is the foible of all philistine peoples you have only to look at our dresses our streets our houses our public buildings and statues to see that as a people we have not a breath of artistic impulse if that does not convince you look at our art galleries still at any rate the stage is advancing it is getting on so much so that it has been taken up by the church always a sign of material prosperity but it is not advancing art is sunk in the artist or the tradesman actors are measured for their parts even when they are not mere dummies the star system and the milky ways of burlesque are the most prominent objects in the dramatic evans 
Beauty, as Rossetti said, is genius on the stage. The modern Marguerite is an actress. The jewels she craves are newspaper notices. Faust up to date is the man who can write or buy them for her. Alas, for the Marguerite who lacks beauty, not for her the furrows of the footlights. Of her, though gold be showered like water, the princeliest Faust can but make a fashionable beauty. But look at the amount of good poetry written every year. Granted, the poets are still with us, but they read one another. Poetry has always been a drug in the market. What? When Tennyson is worth a guinea a box, I mean a word. A drug. A drug still. But having the government stamp it sells it like a patent medicine. Still, England must awake to art soon, for art will be the religion of the future, as religion was the art of the past. Art to be religion? When the Salvation Army is the biggest boom of the epoch, the singing of comic psalms by the army will develop a sense of humor that will gradually kill it. The profits of the Salvation stores will fall off, and the business will be turned into a joint stock company. The millennium will then be put on the market in one-bound shares. And if it only promises to return a good percentage, it will be laid on quicker than by the combined efforts of all the preachers since Abraham. To be serious, the church of the future will be Catholic, not the Catholicism, which is yet to learn that open confession is bad for the soul, which comes to take it as expiation, but the universal church which teaches people not to save their souls but to use them. Ah, then you hope for such a church. A little before the next glacial epoch, human nature has so much to unlearn and is cursed with such a good memory. Man has come to be a parasite on his own machinery. He is the slave of the ecclesiastical and political mechanism he has himself constructed. He cannot shake off the fetters of his past. That is nonsense. There are always great men who rise superior to machinery and construct new. But do you still share the belief in the great man myth? The world is really old enough by now to know better. Some men may be born great, and some may achieve greatness, but most people thrust greatness on other people. The great men themselves know better than to join the ranks of their admirers. Now, if they don't, they are little men, while the hero-worshippers never think of the object of their adoration except in his great aspects. The mind of the hero is chiefly occupied with the consciousness of his little weaknesses. If he is proud at all, it is usually but self-conceit, for the object of his pride is some ability which he does not possess. The great painter is puffed up with the thought that he smokes the most judiciously chosen tobacco. The great musician fancies that he can skate very ornamentally. The great statesman imagines he can guess the plot of a sensational novel by reading the last page. The thing the great men can do consummately is of little concern to him. It is the air he breathes and awakens no admiration in his own mind. The blind man wonders how anyone can see. The street urchin sees and does not marvel. The hero-worshipper stands outside and admires. The hero stands inside himself and is indifferent or disgusted. One day, through some sudden loophole, the worshipper, too, gets a glimpse into the interior and turns away to pick up some mud. To the ex-worshipper, he is a monster. 
To himself, he is the same man that he always was. He finds it hard to understand the change. What makes it harder, in some instances, is that by this time the fumes of the censors may have got into his brain and persuaded him into the popular belief that he is not a mere man, with human passions and absurdities, but the peer of the gods. Unshaken by centuries of exposure, the great man-myth still flourishes, and the educators of the public nourish the delusion which they may themselves profit by some day. There are men with great qualities. There are no great men. For all that, I still believe in you. That is, you don't believe in what I say. Carlyle believed in great men. Because he believed in himself. He showed the air is always full of dust dust of putrefying creeds and prejudices and decaying forms and dust which a million hirelings throw daily into the eyes of the truth and he taught that the universe is swept clean by a succession of scavengers one or two a century which is about the saddest theory of life ever formed no there are no great men there are only famous men and my lady fame is a titania the men at the top are too often bottoms "'Frankly, Mr. Brown, this is all the craziest paradox, and you contradict yourself consumedly. "'Paradox is platitude in the making, and self-contradiction is the essence of candor. "'Then your jaundiced vision sees nothing to praise, no nascent movement to encourage. "'None. Too many others see the rose color, for me the yellow side of the shield. "'Then you think there is use, as well as abuse, in the cynic. "'Understand me.' The cynic does not disbelieve in genuine things, only in the genuineness of things. He is the acid that corrodes things foul of good report. As such, he is indispensable. The world were happier without him. Happily, the world does not listen to him. Nature is a realist, but fortunately her children are romanticists. And is there no hope for humanity? None unless it purchases my books telling it so. Thank you for your courtesy. I understand imperfectly. I am sorry to find you have such a poor opinion of the universe. For my part, I fancy it is all right when you know it, but you've got to know it first. Good-bye, and may you be happy. Thank you, said my victim with emotion. I shall be when you're gone. End of section 17